0: Welcome to the Voice of Wine. This is Vintage with Brian Bushlack, presented by Mass Mutual Financial Group, proud supporter of the wine industry. Now, the Voice of Wine, Brian Bushlack.
1: And welcome to another special edition of Vintage on the Radio Northwest Network, I'm Brian Bushlack in our Portland studio this weekend as we continue our month-long celebration of Oregon Wine Month counting down to the big weekend next weekend Memorial Day weekend tasting rooms across the state will be open and this weekend we focus on the gorgeous Columbia River Gorge with who else who better to welcome than Brian McCormick of Memelus and Idiots Grace Brian thanks for joining us and I think the first thing people think of when they hear Idiots Grace is what in the world is behind that name?
2: <laughs> Do I have to tell everything? It's uh, it comes from uh, uh, sort of uh, I don't know. Um, um, it comes from rock and roll. It's a it's a bit of a snippet of a verse from a, a sort of very obscure um, sort of singer songwriter back kind of in the grunge era, I guess, or I don't know, in the early '90s or late '80s or whenever that was. So, yeah. and you don't yeah, mean it, you don't mean
1: idiot in a bad
2: way either, right? <sighs> No, as I often say, idiot is not in the sense the, the the guy who cuts you off on a on a freeway ramp. It's um, uh, idiot in sort of the sense of a simpleton or someone who's you know not necessarily completely in in charge of of all faculties, but who somehow entrusts the world around to to you know to to provide I guess in a certain way. That's how I feel as a farmer. I suppose it's really not what we're doing. It's the plants and the microbes and everything else, and we're just here to here to push in the right direction as needed.
1: In other words, you realize you have absolutely no control. I have uh, very little control, and most
2: <laughs> of it um, can be, you know, harmful at best. So, yeah, <laughs> try and stay out of the way. And Memelous,
1: what's behind that name?
2: Memelus goes back to um, uh, there's a well it's sort of a uh, name for a number of burial sites I guess in the northwest in local local um, uh, languages and uh, there's a specific Memelus Island here in the Columbia in between uh, Lyle where our winery began and many of our plantings are and and here in Mosier on the Oregon side so there's an island right in between that's called Memelus Island that used to be a burial site and that's where that name came from.
1: Okay, of all the places across Oregon, the West Coast around the world, why did you choose to plant in the Columbia Gorge?
2: So I was farming in Dry Creek in Napa in California for uh, for a while, a number of vintages after I left graduate school for this stuff and was getting uh, bothered by uh, ever-increasing alcohols and also kind of the blandness of year after year of perfect maturity and, uh, and also at the same time um, the glassy-winged sharpshooter was spreading Pierce's disease at, at what was then sort of breakneck rates, and people were beginning to see their cities flown over with pesticides, and and so it just uh, you know trying to trying to keep this this pest um, vector in check, and so it just seemed like a good time to get out, and so we looked north to cooler vintages, places where we were growing a little bit more on the edge um, of success, and and uh, um, yeah, in pursuit of vintage and and some other varieties. Um, that would would not necessarily peg in at 15 degrees alcohol.
1: And why the gorge? I mean, you could have picked the valley. You could have been in Southern Oregon. uh, So many places across Oregon and Washington to choose from. What was it about the gorge? Um, I think we definitely wanted to
2: avoid big uh, inland irrigated spaces. We were trying to get something where we'd have a little bit more natural rainfall and the, and the, the ability to dry farm. Um, at that time, I was under the impression that the Willamette was even wetter than it can be. And so that seemed like that was maybe too easy and too uh, too green. Um, I didn't know enough about Southern Oregon, and maybe it wasn't far enough north from California at the time. I think I had to get a little bit farther away. Um, but that that's also, I think, really promising and interesting down there. So that would have also been totally satisfactory. And then as for the East-West thing, I think if you look at a map, especially a topo map, there's something really special about the Hood River Valley, and it's, and it's um, a, a sort of nearby areas as, as you, you know, it's just a special little secret garden kind of in the, in the middle of the Cascades. It's a little bit greener than you'd expect for as far east as it is, and um, a really interesting uh, geography, topography, lay of the land is, is fascinating and really wrinkled and complex. And so there was a place to tuck in, I think, in a small scale, which is what we sought to do.
1: It's definitely a very unique and amazing part of the world. Those of you just joining us on Vintage, it's Oregon Wine Month, and this weekend we're focused on the Gorge. And Brian McCormick, who's the farmer, cellar master, winemaker, co-owner, tell us about what you think makes that stretch so unique. I mean, we've got so many varietals. it's, It's almost like you can do anything, can't you? Well, you can. And so as a new AVA, I'm not exactly
2: sure. Now I get to put on my my Columbia Gorge Wine Growers Association hat. I'm I'm not sure that we do ourselves um, uh, any favors by talking about how many different things we can do here. So that's, I think, part of what attracts people here. We have people growing menthea and falangina, And, you know, you can have grenache growing very, very close to Chardonnay and and so there there are funny things that happen in the gorge. It's a special place. It's very diverse um, in its sort of climate and weather patterns that that allows a lot of things to grow here. Um, but I think I think it will eventually settle out and you'll find that there are certain things that really, really sing here. So that's really what we're in pursuit of. We've been, you know, the world of wine in forty miles for a long time, and that's that's interesting, but um, uh, it's not quite enough for, I think real wine lovers to really hang their hat on is is for understanding a new place. So I think we'll, we'll like ourselves more in a hundred years when we begin to sort out what, what grapes really, really want to be here.
1: And which ones do you think will be the focus? I mean, if you had to pick say even four or five and narrow it down, (laughs) (laughs) could you, or what what would they be? Uh,
2: you know, I, 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 I probably should take that bait, but I'm just not going to, we have, (laughs) uh, personally, I mean, our own operation, we have 22 or 23 or something varieties planted. Um, uh, you know, you add any of our neighbors, and we're going to be well over forty in no time at all without going very far. So, um, uh, for ourselves, we're really thrilled by um, our uh, by Cabernet Franc. It seems very classic and, and perfumey and, and it does really nice things without being uh, brutish or, or you know overbearing or or particularly fancy. Um, We like a little bit of rusticity in what we do. Um, Actually, Dolcetto is a grape that uh, I'm particularly enthralled by here because as far as I'm concerned, it's not simply, it doesn't simply show typicity or classic Dolcetto traits, but it also shows something that's distinctly the gorge where where our Franc, for example, is more kind of just perfectly typical uh, in in certain ways and and is used in ringers, is the ringer in, in Loire, Franck tastings, for example, Dolcetto is doing its own thing every year, and it's constantly fascinating. So that's, that's the kind of thing we're looking for. We're hanging our hopes on Shannon, um, have really uh, very interesting results in early years. Um, but that's just for our site here in Mosier. The gorge itself is definitely broader, and so we're looking forward to a time when it won't simply all be the Columbia Gorge, but will there will be some sort of sub-designations and some of the, the smaller neighborhoods inside the gorge will be respected. I mean, we love fruit from Underwood, for example, for its uh, Alsatian whites and its more alpine character, um, but that's not our estate. We don't own any ground up there. So,
1: Brian McCormick joining us on Vintage as we celebrate Oregon Wine Month. And you know, you you touch on all those varietals. We're going to take a much deeper dive into that in our next segment and our tasting room segment in about twenty minutes. But uh, you know, you, you've got your dad involved. You know, your family's involved. I know your your kids are involved. It's at some point, right? When they mm-hmm. yep. when they feel like jumping in, you let them in. Um, what's What's it like? I mean, because you've you've really crafted this lifestyle here, um, three generations. And what's it been like to to grow this? Uh, not only this this vineyard and the winery but this family business. Hmm, it's been it's been hard there are a lot of sacrifices involved there's
2: no uh, you know it's it's you you simply have to immerse yourself in it. you don't get to check out at the end of the day and punch your card and go home so um, you gotta do it because you love it. It's certainly not a way to make money um, but it's there, there, there's a lot of beauty I'm super grateful for it. I think that it'll, it, the hard part with the third generation with the young ones is to let them know. That there's anything else out there, you know, they were they were just raised in it, and it's hard for them to have context um, in that case to see what how good it really is what they have. Um, so our our charge for them is to go, you know, send them out into the world and let them come back when they see maybe what they had if they if they care to. Um, and it's really nice to work with family. It's family as family, and I won't pretend it's not complicated. But that's um, been it's been great. It really has been. I mean, it's it's a, just a gross privilege. It's really been we're very fortunate. There's no doubt about it.
1: What's it been like for your dad to see you grow this? Uh, I think I think he's takes a lot of pride
2: in it. It's been important to honor the things that he wants out of it, and and you know so our some of our early work was kind of aimed at a different demographic, and um, uh, especially in our labeling. For example, Memolus is a more kind of sort of upstanding, rather polished uh, label, and and so we wanted I wanted to give him um, be sure that you know he was able to show what he valued in that but he's always been very indulgent of my um aspirations which are more obscure varieties more like i said a rustic presentation i want wines for for food and not just fancy food you know i love dolcetto because it's something you can drink any night you don't have to wait for it to age in your cellar um while you maybe wait for other things to to come around in storage you know and, and bottles to age and that kind of thing so
1: when we come back, more On Location in the Columbia Gorge. Brian McCormick joining us as Vintage continues on the Radio Northwest Network.
0: From Woodinville to Walla Walla, welcome back to Vintage with Brian Bushlack presented by Mass Mutual Financial Group.
1: And from our Portland studio this weekend, Vintage continues on the Radio Northwest Network. I'm Brian Bushlack as we celebrate Oregon Wine Month and counting down to the biggest weekend of the year, no doubt about it, Memorial Day weekend. Less than a week away now, time to plan your trip to Oregon Wine Country. We'll tell you more about how you can do that, where to go. The best resources coming up in about 10 minutes. First, though, we're going to swing it back out to the Columbia Gorge. Brian McCormick at Memeloos and Idiot's Grace joining us. And we touched on this in our last segment, gave our our listeners a little taste of what's happening in the gorge. Um, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned, you know, with everything that can be grown in that that stretch, that 20, 30-mile stretch through there, you know, that's been the calling card. But you felt that moving forward, you need to move away from that and be more specific. You talked about some varietals you're excited about. But I think it's it's interesting because that has been the calling card for the, for the gorge here the past few years. And to really kind of go away from that, um, I, I think it's going to be kind of interesting to see how that plays out, won't it? I think so,
2: and I definitely don't want to go away from it. I mean, you, you've got no business growing Giverts on Underwood Mountain, on the, the high elevation west end of the gorge, and also out north, near Maryhill, right? I mean, we need to respect those different sites and, and, and grow different things there. But I think that um, it's hard for people... Well, the Columbia Gorge isn't, designation is almost a is so broad, it's almost just a touring, becomes a touring destination, kind of a, a label. And what we really need to do is just break down and start to talk about sub-regions within Within the AVA, I think,
1: and then things will begin to make more sense. And the topography, obviously, the winds, the heat, the cool. I mean, it. It. You know, you came from California many years ago, and obviously know the Gorge well now. Um, that certainly, you know, we we travel all over the country and all over the state. Um, different AVAs; they're all unique. Everybody has, you know, from a marketing standpoint, I guess, something that mm. you know sets them apart. But the Gorge. Uh, is on another level and you know I don't just say that because I'm a native Oregonian and grew up <laughs> on the east side of the mountains it you know it really is unique and I mean it's 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 like a place that you would not find anywhere else in the world isn't it
2: I think so. Like I said, I mean we really found it. I don't know if the company's even around. There was a company called Raven Maps and they did these sort of hand shaded topography uh, like topographic maps and that's what we were looking at. And and the gorgeous, it's it's a it's a very special little keyhole in the cascade. So it's definitely it's definitely different. It's a massive point of transition like a um, a point of inflection on a graph, you know, that the the warm and the cool and the wet and the dry and everything and it just gets it it just gets sort of all those transitions are focused to almost you know within like a mile's width or thickness as they squeeze through the gorge and that just makes things happen um, uh, you know it made made things happen geologically as the floods came down and 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 kind of chiseled this place out in the first in, in the first place and um, and it happens every day I mean the winds today are are blowing over our orchard ladders and blowing our cardboard recycling into the into the street and and uh, and then you know last week it was 89 degrees and roasting and perfectly still and you know the windsurfers were crying because they couldn't get on the river so it's it changes dramatically from day to day and certainly across the season it makes the shoulder seasons very challenging so the spring can be tricky we've lost um we've lost uh, to to frost in the spring we've lost to frost in the fall and then um, hard winters as well we've lost vines um, and we've learned what not to plant here through through some winter experience too so it's very dynamic
1: Brian McCormick is the farmer, cellar master, winemaker at Memeloose and Idiot's Grace, joining us from the Gorge uh, this weekend on Vintage as we celebrate Oregon Wine Month. And yeah, you know, I have to ask you: uh, you're planting vineyards, and with the diverse topography that you just talked about, um, what went into those decisions on where you know where you're going to plant and what you're going to plant, where you're going to plant? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I would think that you know it's it's wide open, which is exciting, but it's also got to be pretty specific, right? Uh, yeah, I think so.
2: I think it, it, here it depends on on a person's um, on a person's whatever natural inclinations. Here, I have very good friends from graduate school who also settled uh, uh, um, here in Mosier, or at least put down roots, planted some grapes here, even though they're not um, living here at the moment. But uh, and they were very careful about running models and choosing what they thought would work just perfectly. And so I think they may have four or five, maybe more, but but in general, they they, they sort of chose three or four varieties that I think seemed perfect for their spot. And um, I may just maybe not, I'm not that smart, but mostly I feel <laughs> that uh, the exceptions are actually really interesting. And so I wasn't actually that confident in any of the data either that I was going to have on the specifics of my site once we finally found that site, and I also wasn't that convinced that grapes are that um, predictable in their behavior either. So I, I find uh, more of a shotgun approach um, to be really compelling, and then we overplant basically in, in the number of grapes that, that uh, are grown here, and we're hoping to just winnow, pull things out, graft things over as soon as we find you know failures is the way I talk about it, um, grapes that just don't quite ever delight or show
1: something really new and, and interesting. I love your approach because you have to uh, think that you know coming out on the Oregon Trail, the pioneers didn't have all the, <laughs> all the right. technology that we we do today, and they're like, well, they got there to Hood River and thought, man, this is a pretty nice place. Let's plant something, right? I mean, exactly, and it worked, right? right?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so they chose pears and apples for the most part. There's some um, old grapes there out toward the Dalles, but um, yeah, so this is kind of the second generation planting for this area, which is much the same as actually we saw in Sonoma. I think that was prunes, especially uh, in the Healdsburg area. Uh, I think Healdsburg was the buckle of the prune belt when I was down there, I mean, originally, uh, and of course it's all grapes uh, now. So um, I think places go through this evolution, and then the question will be what what climate change does to our current decisions and how we look ahead to that. And we're trying to compensate for that, but that's kind of the next step in complexity.
1: And how much collaboration is there in the gorge between winemakers, wineries, vineyards? Are you comparing notes a lot? Uh, I think so. Yeah, we're tasting. We, we all tend to be in
2: tasting groups, or at least those of us who are really kind of looking to the future. I think you have a young AVA like this, and people are doing what they do for different reasons. There are folks who are pear growers and have planted some grapes to see how it goes. They enjoy interacting with the public in a way that you don't with some of those um, stored commodities like apples and pears. You don't really have a chance to meet your customer, and, and so growing grapes and making wine is a way to do that. Um, other people enjoy sort of emulating uh, classic styles and maybe planting more Burgundian things and running a more Burgundian style operation. And then there are those of us that are really setting out to just wait and see what the Gorge hands us back in exchange for our work. Um, so it is collaborative and um, it's it's really, it's been satisfying to be a part of uh, our association. The Columbia Gorge Wine Growers Association is a chance for everybody to get together and. Um, uh, I think some of the early meetings were pretty drunken affairs without <laughs> offending anybody. It was, a, it was a nice part of coming together. And, uh, you know, the business gets thicker and, and the stakes a little bit higher as we move along. And uh, but the, the sense of collaboration and collegiality is still there.
1: Brian McCormick joining us from Memeloos and Idiot's Grace, Oregon Wine Month, continuing on the Radio Northwest Network and statewide. When we come back, our Tasting Room segment, we'll talk about three of the varietals that Brian touched on off the top of the show. Hey, it's Oregon Wine Month, and we're not talking about Pinot Noir. We'll tell you more about that and why coming up as Vintage continues.
0: covering the vineyards, spirits, and craft beers each week with the Joe six-pack of wine. This is Vintage with Brian Bushlack.
1: And crossing the bottom of the hour on the Radio Northwest Network, wherever you may be across Oregon and Washington, we welcome you to a special edition of Vintage as we celebrate Oregon Wine Month and the best place to plan for Memorial Day weekend. All the tasting rooms across the state will be open next weekend. Visit OregonWineMonth.org. OregonWine.org also a good resource, and all the planning tools you'll need to pick your favorite stops next weekend on Memorial Day weekend. This weekend we focus on the Columbia Gorge. Brian McCormick joining us from Memeloose and Idiot's Grace. This is our tasting room segment in. And- Welcome you back, Brian. You know, off the top of the show, you shared three varietals from the Gorge that you particularly like at uh, your winery and that you're growing. I want to revisit those and kind of walk and talk through why you you think Cab Franc, Dolcetto, and Shannon will be so popular from the Gorge in the years to come. (laughs) <laughs> no i never said popular oh you didn't okay
2: <laughs> well no i mean just to say we don't uh, we don't actually um yeah we're not that popular yet that popular is the thing What the things that we believe in and take i guess a lot of pleasure in and, and that seem to show complexity and interest and, and a, a match to the site so is that popularity i'm not sure i'm counting <laughs> but, on you to make them popular <laughs> okay well that's our job for sure uh yeah so um i don't know exactly uh what to say well so um Cabernet Franc is, uh, we've just bottled our ninth vintage, I guess, of that yesterday, actually, and uh, um, it's, so yeah, like I mentioned, it shows uh, classic Cab Franc traits, Franciness, as, as we often uh, refer to it, although the 2015 that we just bottled is so ripe as to um, place some of those down in favor of just riper fruit, but um, in general, it comes in kind of medium weight, true to type, and uh, with kind of a really nice plummy I don't know, richness without being rich. You know, we really like uh, things to be driven by their acidity or at least uh, structured on acidity here. And usually um, in years that aren't ridiculously overheated, uh, as some of the recent vintages have been, uh, that's what we get here. So a grape that um, really rewards the diner. You can sit and eat and have a conversation with the people at your table and also with the wine uh, in your glass. It seems to uh, work just perfectly and it's relatively easy to grow which is for me not laziness but a definition of a grape that's well suited to its place Uh, we don't have to do huge amounts of manipulation for vigor or for fruitfulness or anything else and and the grapes ripen at about the right time most years without without too much um, too much stress Uh, Is that a reasonable kind of summary here? Should we keep going like that?
1: That is spot on. We're loving it. That's great. That that really helps our our listeners, uh, you know, the next time they're in the gorge in a tasting room, you know, try something different, right? There you go.
2: Yeah. And uh, uh, so then the next one, Dolcetto is probably going to stretch the average taster. Not everyone in our tasting room has even heard of the grape. Um, I always like it is, you know, in, in its northern Italian homeland, it's sort of the grape that you... What do they say that uh, in the, in the Piedmont, you know, ninety percent of a person's blood or something is is Dolcetto. If you sort of stuck a needle in and did the analysis, that that's kind of something that gets drunk all the time. It's great with tomato and tangy sauces. It has a kind of a certain structure that's different from other grapes for me. It's got a um, uh, it's got kind of a, a a bitterness to its tannin. It's not rich and 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 structured like a piece of furniture. It's got this kind of um, tough little bitterness at the end, which for me just sends me on to back to my my whatever's on my fork, and then back to the glass again. So I think it becomes a really interesting conversation um, at the table. Uh, But for us, it's mostly, um, it's sort of an unpredictable and kind of feral um, member of our uh, the stable of grapes that we grow. uh, It never seems to ferment quite the same way. The outcome is really different. It's different um, and interesting in, in across a, uh, a range of ripenesses. And so that makes it kind of fun. Um, but we always pick it quite, you know relatively early and want it to be kind of juicy and really uh, vivid. And it's not a place where we're looking for Finesse and balance, and something really sublime, but just something tangy and, and um, kind of fun to be around, like a that, you know kind of a companion you might want at the table in the first place as a, as a conversation partner. So uh, that's dolcetto, and as I mentioned, the the, the fact that it's always exciting, and, and although it shares things with its northern Italian um, you know uh, forebears or whatever, it's definitely it's definitely quite distinctive here and different in other places. And by the and way,
1: I think that we might interject because we got a new wine term in the lexicon: feral. And I, I, it's a feral, right? I'm like, that is a new one in all my years of hosting this show. I like it. You're talking about this wine. It's it's a little feral. It is. It's it's kind of a,
2: it's it's it does a little bit of a wild thing. I mean, we don't inoculate any of our grapes for you know we're using vineyard yeast. We actually start our ferments with gamay uh, yeah, in the in the in the vineyard or in some sort of third location, not actually in the cellar. So we try and get everything started with with microbes actually from the vineyard and not anything that's on the walls or the equipment or whatever of the cellar. So it really is a Distinctive local, at least at the beginning of the season, local uh, culture that's driving all these things, and so that's I, I began using "feral" as, as a description for our ferments in general, uh, and, and and it started to actually really apply to Dolcetto too. It's kind of a wild, tangy grape. <laughs> and, uh, I
1: don't know. I like that. I do. too. That's a good. A little little bit of rusticity suits us. It's a good way to put it. If you're just joining us on vintage, it's Oregon Wine Month Memorial Day weekend coming up uh, less than a week away. Glad you could join us. Brian Bushlack in our Portland studio. Brian McCormick joining us from the Gorge this weekend and Shannon Blanc. Tell us about uh, this varietal and why you like it so much.
2: Well, so we haven't really talked about the two-state thing in the gorge that much. Columbia Gorge is Washington and Oregon uh, roughly equally, uh, although not in planting area. But uh, but it's definitely a two-sided thing, and on both interests need to be taken into consideration. Um, uh, on... Uh, Chenin Blanc, for example, that's really a strongly uh, Washington grape for me. I think there's, I mean, not tons of it, but there's there's a bunch up there. You can still find some Chenin in Washington. Uh, I think there's a very very little bit in Oregon, other than ours. I think ours is the first planting in the gorge uh, this this century anyway, or, or re- recently. But uh, uh, for us, Chenin is um, a grape that can do many things across the world and so this is the one that we planted with the least understanding of what we were likely to get so I didn't know whether this was you know this wine can be dry or sweet and can be sparkling or it can be still it can be a lot of different things and we really didn't know and we still don't honestly but um, we were, we've picked I think four vintages out of it now um, uh, but it's uh, so it's for me kind of a shape-shifter it can be a lot of things it can be very subtle and limpid and and um, provocative kind of like like some of the pale Pinot Noir in Burgundy, you know, you have almost no color in those wines, and yet they still, they're just, they're like, just atmospheric, and they fill your head with perfume, and, and there's something about Chenin that can do that, there are other very concrete examples, and sometimes they're too acid, and so we really didn't know where we were going to come down in the spectrum, um, but uh, uh, it's showing promise, it's it's again showing a, a trueness to Chenin from from Europe and from South Africa, other places where people do Chenin well, um, uh, And and we'll just have to see whether it wants to be uh, you know, it's it's been our first harvest have all been these warmer seasons, so it's it's been a little bit more, I don't know, more um, exuberant and and sort of decadent in these early stages. And so we're looking to see what would happen if we get a nice cool season and what that can actually be. But um, it's very promising, very interesting. Um, and again, these wild ferments are are pretty fun to watch in, in a grape like that. It's not the easiest thing for us to ferment as an organic operation. Our nutrients are a little bit lower and so it's hard to get the wine fully dry for us. Um, and so you'll find a little bit of just a trace of residual, just enough to give roundness. Um, and that's not by choice, that's just sort of our, the best negotiation with our, our microbial team. But um, uh, so it's definitely an open an open book for us still, but um, but really interesting.
1: Brian McCormick joining us from Memelous and Idiot's Grace. He's the farmer, cellar master and winemaker there. Uh, grand opening weekend of this new tasting room. We're going to talk more about that coming up in our next segment, but uh, have to ask you about a couple other varietals, Riesling, Chardonnay also. You're, you're, you're making those wines and doing them very well, and those are two varietals, uh, particularly Chardonnay from Oregon, really getting a lot of uh, good publicity of late, isn't it? Yeah, and
2: I have to say, uh, not to undercut this segment at all, the, the Chardonnay we get is from Underwood Mountain, which is in the Washington side of the gorge. So um, uh, we uh, n- are not growing that ourselves and actually have, have um, as of 2016, I guess, stopped making that particular wine, although we miss it quite a bit. Um, it showed great acidity and verve. We were always the first to pick it from that site, which mm-hmm. suited us. We didn't want anything opulent. Um uh, and I, I, I would love to honestly have it back, but as we retreated to just a state fruit, uh, that was something that we had to sort of part ways with, but uh, um, yeah. And then Riesling is, again, uh, was the Washington side um, and really, really interesting and delicious and a long history of that around here, but um, we had to. We had
1: Put that aside, also. Well, it's interesting though. You talk about the Oregon-Washington connection, and it's undeniable throughout the gorge and all the way out to the Rocks District and Walla Walla, where you know you do have this collaboration of uh, Washington wineries using Oregon fruit and Oregon wineries doing the same, right? Yeah, and it's it's great. It makes
2: um, it makes for very colorful conversations at these quarterly meetings of the association. And people working together and and watching each other. And we uh, haven't. We are now experiencing outside money coming in with interest in some of these vineyards. And so the fruit's starting to move, not just across the state line within the gorge, but to across the state line even more broadly. So our fruit is heading out into into other regions as people see its appeal. And and we're starting to get data back from what other winemakers are doing with our own fruit, and that's. Um, interesting, if a little bit bittersweet, We'd like to then eventually bring that fruit back in and have it staying in the gorge and and have more wineries producing uh, estate fruit and using the local resources. but um, but certainly it's um, it's interesting and definitely um, yeah, hops that state line easily and and with good reason. It's it, you know people definitely turn to Oregon side for certain things and to Washington for others.
1: When we come back, Oregon Wine Month continues on Vintage. We'll tell you about the new tasting room from Emma Luce and Idiot's Grace. That's up next on the Radio Northwest Network.
0: From Southern Oregon to Santa Barbara, you're listening to Vintage with Brian Bushlack, presented by Mass Mutual Financial Group.
1: And approaching the top of the hour now on our broadcast and across the world on our podcast, This Is Vintage. I'm Brian Bushlack from our studio in Portland this weekend as we continue our month-long celebration of Oregon Wine Month. If you're just joining us, let's reset As Memorial Day weekend now, less than a week away and a great opportunity to plan your trip to Oregon Wine Country. Visit OregonWineMonth.org to plan your trip. All the tasting rooms across the state will open next weekend. And, of course, Oregon Wine Month continues throughout the month of May. And this weekend... It's great to be back focusing on the Columbia Gorge, one of my favorite places. We've been focused on this region for over a decade now and seen the growth. And this weekend, we welcome Brian McCormick, who is the farmer, cellar master, and winemaker at Memeloos and Idiot's Grace. And Brian, thanks for taking time out. Busy weekend for you this weekend. Not only uh, you'll be open next weekend for the holiday weekend, but this is the grand opening weekend of your new tasting room. Tell us about this project. It's uh, pretty special.
2: It is pretty special. We've been, we, uh, as, as, as mentioned, this is a two-state AVA, and we, we've been farming here pears and cherries and gradually more and more wine grapes on our personal property here in Mosier. But we've been making the wine for since 2006 over on the Washington side in the little town of Lyle, uh, where my parents and some of our other grapes are. And so just over the past few years, we've gone through the, we're in the Columbia Gorge uh, scenic area, so it's, uh, there's a lot of additional, Kind of paperwork burden. You need to be really uh, respectful of this special place and its federal designation. But we got paperwork passed and got approval, and so have spent a couple of years building this winery. And now we're uh, making here in the state of Oregon. And our tasting room has, as you mentioned, just opened, the grand opening this weekend. And it's, uh, it's life-changing. <laughs> it's really nice to have all this in a person's front yard, and yet here it all is in the front yard. So we're coming to terms with it. My family is learning to live with a little bit less um, privacy. But it's been really important to us uh, as as we've been able to do it, as slowly as that's been, uh, we've finally able to get people to where the grapes are actually growing. Um and where the cherries and pears are, and and there's a book called The Pattern Language, um, which is uh, uh, I think out of Berkeley in the maybe late '70s, something like that. There, some architects did this incredible work of um, uh, on architecture and on the priorities that a person might um, well choose as they ch- as they design spaces and design homes and things like this. And there's a notion there that you're on a kind of larger regional level that you have. Um, uh, that people have should have access in a way to their farmland and that farmland shouldn't be considered this personal, you know, owned space so much as sort of borrowed from the commons in a little in, in a way. And so this chance of having the tasting room on the property, we're really encouraging people to get out with a bottle and a picnic. We have picnic baskets and food and we want them out sitting under trees, walking rows and experiencing the farmland only with the understanding that we sort of purchased really the privilege of working this land and of raising. Our family here, but that in fact it still belongs in our case to Mosier as as a regional, uh, you know, a town resource in a way. Um, and so we obviously feel a duty to farm it for the ages, and and we want people to be able to experience what that's like. And so it's gotten tricky a little bit. You you know, if you're going to sulfur a vineyard, you have to be sure people aren't going in there. And so we have come up with a system with maps, and we kind of direct people to appropriate locations for their safety. But um, it's really great to, and, and people are, are slow to embrace this. Actually, it's fun to watch them you know get really you want us where we can just walk out there um and so that's that's been kind of fun to watch their eyes open a little bit but um that's kind of the interaction here is that you're tasting room uh, you come in you taste your wine and then you move out into our space or else take a bottle home and go cook that's that's our that's our line
1: And I'm looking at the map. It says children are welcome, but must be carefully supervised. Watch watch out for dust and dirt, of course, farm equipment, uneven ground, snakes, bees and yellow jackets and poison ivy as well, along with strong sunshine, wind, incredible views and unspeakable beauty and wonder of nature. That pretty much sums up the Columbia Gorge, doesn't it? It's true. Uh, with the exception of poison ivy, I'm not sure where that
2: typo came in, but it should be poison oak. But anyway, yes, it's okay. a real thing, and uh, the, the gorge is a dramatic place to drink wine and to do all sorts of other things, as people well know. So uh, we're just one option, um, and you know, maybe we fit in around your lunch break as you're windsurfing or hiking or skiing or whatever.
1: Well, it must feel pretty good. I mean, you've been doing this in the gorge for over 15 years now, and you open this beautiful tasting room and have to feel Pretty good. I mean, it's a lot, a lot of work, ton of work to get to this point. But you got to feel good. Yeah, it
2: feels great, but it is a tremendous burden. And so, yeah, I hope I stay um, young enough for long enough to keep it going. Or else, uh, one of my boys uh, ends up developing an interest uh, sufficient to keep it going. It's, um, uh, yeah. But you know, once you've planted these things, they'll outlast me. And and um, and so, one way or the other, I hope. I hope that what we start here will, will. Yeah, Yeah. we'll grow long roots and and we'll we'll last and um, to the greater good of the gorge because I think it's a really special spot. It's not just, um, yeah, it's not just one more place to drink wine.
1: I think it has something to say and we just have to figure out how to how to hear it best. Our thanks to Brian McCormick, the farmer, cellar master, and winemaker at Memeloose and Idiot's Grace as Oregon Wine Month continues throughout the month of May. We're counting down to the big weekend. Next weekend, Memorial Day weekend, all the tasting rooms across the state will be open. For your pleasure, visit OregonWineMonth.org to plan your trip, and we'll talk to you again next weekend on the holiday weekend along the Radio Northwest Network.